you tonight. We are in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 14. And uh, while you're turning to Psalm 14, I want to share a little story with you, a little incident that took place a number of years ago when I was a guest speaker uh, at a church in England. And I was uh, there for a week. I was preaching a gospel mission. I preached for them regularly every year uh, almost. I preached a week of gospel mission. But this one particular year, uh, everybody was having a good time at my expense. They decided that they would uh, tell all their favorite Irish jokes. And so the whole week I had to listen to one Irish joke after another. You know the kind of jokes about like the Irish woodworm found dead in a brick and all that sort of thing. Uh, all those jokes that you and I have laughed about. You know they don't tell Irish jokes anymore because we're so afraid of offending people. But actually when Irish jokes were popular... Irish people enjoyed telling Irish jokes more than anybody. And when I lived in the Republic of Ireland, they, they, used, to, they used to tell Kerry man jokes. Uh, so people in Kerry were the butt of the joke. And in America, they used to tell jokes about the Polish people. Uh, you can't tell jokes about anybody anymore because everybody's so sensitive and everybody's such a snowflake that it'll just break their poor sensitive soul. But, uh, you know, back then we used to tell jokes. That was the thing we did in the, in the olden days. We used to laugh a lot. But uh, anyway, uh, these people were telling these jokes and they were laughing and they were having a good time. Even the pastor got into it. You know, he got up to give us notices and he would make a little Irish joke when he was up there. And so I laughed along, had a good time with him, even shared a few Irish jokes of my own. And at the end of the week, I said this as I got up to preach. I said, you know why Irish jokes are so stupid? And they looked at me and I said, so as English people can understand them. <laughs> and unlike you, nobody laughed. <laughs> nobody laughed. Uh, there was just a frown, like, why would you be so cruel? And how can you be so heartless? And there was tumbleweed, you know, <laughs> nothing, not even a smile. And I guess sometimes it's easier to dish it out than it is to accept it uh, for yourself. And I suppose no one really ultimately likes to be think, thought of as stupid or uh, less intelligent or foolish in some way. Uh, but when you come into the Word of God, the word of fool uh, appears some 57 times in the Old Testament. It appears nine times in the New Testament. That's 66 times in all. There are 66 books in your Bible. So there's a fool for every book of the Bible. And so when God calls someone a fool, we would do well to stop for a moment and consider and pause and reflect and think about just who it is and why it is that God would label somebody with that term. You know, when you study the Bible, you'll find that there are many occasions in which God does uh, call people fools. But I want to think about three people in particular tonight, or three kinds of people tonight that God calls a fool. And so I want to think about perhaps the greatest of follies and the greatest of mistakes and the greatest of fools and speak to you about the three biggest fools in Ulster. And the first of these fools is the man who's mentioned in chapter 14 of Psalms and verse 1, where it says, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool hath said in his heart, there is 
no God. You know, it's very fashionable these days to say that there's no God, to deny the existence of God, to profess oneself to be an atheist as though somehow or other that would be a badge of honor, that people should look up to you, that it can't be gainsaid, that it can't be challenged. You know, many people in the world of entertainment today are very open about their atheism, particularly in the world of comedy. And I think you'd have to be a comic to be an atheist. But nevertheless, that's how they are. Uh, you know, a lot of them will wear their atheism on their sleeve and let you know that they deny God and uh, every notion of God. And so it's become an in thing to deny the existence of God. And yet the Bible says that people who do so are behaving foolishly. In many respects, when you look at mankind, man is a brilliant creature. You know, we, uh, we are uh, well in advance of any other creature upon earth, and I'm not speaking in evolutionary terms here. Uh, you know, people talk about how intelligent dolphins are, or how intelligent ants are in the insect world, and so on. Uh, but there's not a creature on earth that compares with man when it comes to intelligence, to advancement, to knowledge, to his ability to uh, be created and ingenious, and, and that's true in every respect almost except this one. When man gets so puffed up that he thinks he's greater than God, and he thinks he's better than God, when he thinks he knows more than God. And so the Bible says of such a man that the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible is very emphatic here that the man who says there is no God is such a fool. I remember hearing the story of the evangelist D.L. Moody and he was uh, conducting evangelistic meetings and he frequently would face hecklers who would uh, strongly disagree with him and uh, in the final service of one particular campaign an usher handed the famous evangelist a note as he entered into the church meeting room. And it was actually from an atheist who had been giving Mr. Moody a fair degree of trouble over the, that week. And so the evangelist thought that it was an announcement when he received the note. And so he, he tucked it away and he got up into the pulpit and he opened the note uh, to uh, read it to the congregation and to give this particular notice. But on this folded piece of paper as he opened that, there was just one word written, fool, fool. And Moody was more than equal to the occasion. He said, I have been handed a memo which contains the single word, fool. He says, this is most unusual. I've often heard of those who have written letters and forgotten to sign their names. But this is the first time I've heard of anyone who signed their name and forgot to write the letter. <laughs> he was, of course, speaking about that atheist. And he took advantage of that particular note and he opened to this text, Psalm 14 and verse 1, and he promptly changed his sermon and preached on this very text. Many years ago, I had a pastor friend who I love dearly. He's uh, moved out of the country now, but he was uh, in England and uh, he was in a neighboring church to our church. He lived in a, a little town called Congleton. And uh, he was very thorough in putting out evangelistic materials. And, and on this one particular occasion, he put leaflets and uh, all the way through a, 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 a newsletter, effectively, all the way through the whole neighborhood. Many thousands of them were delivered. And uh, he got a letter from an atheist. And uh, the atheist uh, took his paper apart, as it were, at least he thought he did, paragraph per paragraph. He challenged everything that was written in this particular uh, newsletter, this particular evangelistic paper. And uh, remarkably, he said this at the end. He said that no one would ever read or respond to such a paper as his, having just read the entire thing and responded to it. You know, there's a special kind of stupid, isn't there? 
And uh, I think that man probably fitted the bill. So this is the folly of the human condition when it denies the existence of God. Man thinks he's so clever, so intelligent, so super scientific, and yet the reality is he's a fool. I wonder, are you such a person tonight? Do you deny the reality of God? Do you deny the existence of God? Do you doubt the very nature of God and and who God is? You know, the psalmist tells us some things about the kind of person that, uh, that has this philosophy. And notice he tells us how conceited is his claim. He says, the man who says there is no God, you know, he he says it as though that's the end of the argument. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, that his position cannot be challenged. He's such an intelligent person. He, He sometimes will tell you that he believes in science, believes in science. You know, that's faith. If you believe in something, that's an act of faith. You know, I don't have to believe in this pulpit. This pulpit is here. I don't have to exercise any faith in accepting that. There it sits before me in this plat- on this platform this evening. But there are things that I cannot see and things that I cannot maybe know that I maybe have to have faith in. Uh, but certainly there are those who would suggest that they believe in science, that they're following science when they deny the existence of God. And yet they seem to ignore the fact that many scientists eminent scientists, men of undoubted intelligence, indeed, sometimes of superior intelligence, have the conviction that not only does God exist, but that he created the world in six, six days. Dr. Arthur Compton, the great scientist who won a Nobel Prize in physics, had this to say. He said, for myself, faith begins with a realization that a supreme intelligence brought this world into existence and created man. An orderly unfolding universe testifies to the truth of the most majestic statement ever uttered. In the beginning, God created. So to say that there is no God is to belie the plainest of evidence, which is obstinacy. To say there is no God is to, is to oppose the common consent of man, which is stupidity. You know, a lot of people today think they're in the majority when they deny God, but actually they're still in a minority because the greater number of people the world over accept that there is some kind of supreme being and acknowledge the existence of some kind of God. So to oppose the common consent of man is a stupidity and to stifle one's own consciousness which is telling you there's a God, really amounts to insanity. You see, creation proves there's a God. You know, everything must have a cause. There's a law of cause and effect. And the atheist wants us to believe that everything just happened, that nothing was created, that there is no cause to the world around us. And you know, that takes greater faith than I could possibly muster, to be honest with you, to believe that everything that is so orderly, everything that is so well designed, everything that fits to believe that the entire ecological system where one creature survives off the back of another creature, to believe that all of this is just the the result of blind chance of some massive explosion and billions of years ago that amounted to everything that we see around us. Listen, friends, the Bible says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. In other words, you look up into the night sky and you can see the order and the structure of the universe and realize that God put all those things 
in place. One night in Egypt, Napoleon, the great emperor, uh, pointed to the stars and he said, for no other reason than those lights up there am I convinced that there is a God. Creation tells there's a God. History proves there's a God. You know, take one little moment in history. Oftentimes it looks like it has no bearing on anything else. It's just a standalone event without any particular meaning. But you look at history over the ages and what do you find? You'll see that behind all the conflicting passions of men and women and nations, one great purpose is, is interwoven throughout it all. God is controlling history. And we see that even now as we approach the end of the age, as we see the way in which the world is going, we understand that God has a great purpose. The Bible says that all things are after the counsel of his own will. He's counseling every, he's, he's controlling everything. He's guiding everything. He's shaping everything. And the Lord Jesus proves there's a God. Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath what? Seen the Father. So you want proof of God? He says, I'm proof of God. No sensible person would deny the existence of Jesus Christ, although some people are now at that stage in their own minds where they're suggesting Jesus wasn't even a historical figure, that he is some kind of legendary figure. But no real historian, no sensible person would deny the existence of Jesus. And when creation proves there's a God and history proves there's a God and the Savior proves there's a God, how arrogant then it is to claim that there is no God. How arrogant is this claim? Or how convenient is this claim? How convenient or how arrogant is this claim? How convenient is this claim? For if someone said, if there's no God, then I need no longer bother about obeying his will or keeping his commandments. It's very interesting. As you look into this psalm, Psalm 14 and verse 1, that God traces atheism not to an intellectual problem, but to a spiritual problem, a moral problem. It says the atheist, the, 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 the fool hath said in his heart, hath said in his heart, there is no God. It's not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of there being a lack of evidence, it's a matter of denying the evidence that is there. And you know, that's where a lot of folks are. You see, it's, it's not that a person cannot believe in God, but that, uh, but that they refuse to believe in God. You see, it's, it's not that the skeptic cannot believe in God. Uh, he can believe in God, but the reason he doesn't believe in God is because he doesn't want to take the responsibility for the reality that there is a God and thereby be, be accountable for his sin. The moment you acknowledge God, the moment you say God exists, you immediately think, well, if God exists, then I'm answerable to him. If God exists, I'm accountable to him. If God exists, I'm going to stand before his judgment throne someday and give an account of my life. But the skeptic and the atheist and the agnostic say, well, we don't want to think about that. We're going to put God to one side and then we're going to live however we please. By the way, you don't have to be a philosophical atheist to be a practical atheist. You can live as though there's no God. 
You can live as though you'll never be called into judgment. And maybe that's how you're living. You know, maybe you're living as though there is no God. Notice the words, there is, in this particular verse. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if you're using the authorized version, you'll see that those words are italicized, which means that they were added by the translators for the purpose of clarification. But here, if we take those two words out, we maybe get a better sense of what David was saying. He's saying, the fool has said in his heart, no God. He's saying no to God. No to God having a place in his heart. No to God having a place in his life. No to God having a place in his actions. No to God having a place in his home. No to God having a place in his decisions. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're here tonight. It's not that you're an atheist. It's not that you're philosophically atheistic. It's not that you are going to say to yourself, well, there definitely is no God, but you're acting as though there's no God. And that's just as foolish. And that's just as wicked. You see, even though you believe that God exists, you might live as though he does not. I wonder, are you that kind of person this evening? There's another kind of folly seen in the, in the scriptures. And that's the, uh, that's, the, that's the folly of downplaying sin. Of playing down, one, of playing down the, the issue of sin. The Bible says that fools make a mock at sin. The English word fool there and the the word folly comes from the Latin word follis, which means bellows. It indicates the fellow is a a windbag, someone full of air but lacking in substance. We might say he's full of hot air. The Bible says that fools make a mock of sin. Fools treat sin lightly. Now, sin is, sin is one of those words, isn't it? It's an ugly word. It's not a pretty word. It's not the word you want to have attached to your character, to your person. It's not a word that is readily embraced by this modern generation. You know, we call sin anything but what it is, sin. We've all kinds of nice terms and nice titles, and, and we try to sugarcoat it. We try to make it look more palatable and more acceptable than it ought to be. And we're constantly trying to minimize and nullify the effect of sin upon our lives. So instead of of saying someone is a drunkard, we say, oh, he's, he's an alcoholic. Instead of saying that this man has given in to his lust, we say he's having an affair. We're constantly, uh, we're constantly papering over the cracks of it. You know, men say that sin is an accident, and God says it's an abomination. Men say it's a blunder, but God says it's a blindness. Uh, man says that it's a, sin is a chance, but God says it's a choice. Man says that sin is a personal defect, but God calls it a disease. Man says that sin is an error. God says it's enmity. Man treats it as a fascination. God speaks of it as a fatality. Man says that sin is just a luxury, and God says, no, it's a leprosy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man says it's a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man says it's a weakness, but God declares in his word that it's a wickedness. The Bible says fools make a mock at sin. You see, they have never felt the burden nor seen sin for what it really is. The writer Mark Twain once said this, 
I am constructed like everybody else and enjoy a compliment as well as any other fool. But I do like to have the other side presented. And there is another side. I have a wicked side. Esteemable friends who know all about it would tell you that I take a certain delight in telling you things that I've done and things further that I have not repented of. The real life that I live and the real life that I suppose all of you live is a life of interior sin. That is what makes life valuable and pleasant, to lead a life of undiscovered sin. That is true joy. You hear what Twain said? He said to live a life of sin is is true joy. And friends, that's what you find in the world. That's what you find with your worldly friends. That's what you find in worldly conversation. You find people gloating about sin, boasting about sin, trying to sin more and more than they did previously, and somehow or other laying that out as if it's something to be admired, something to be appreciated. Fools make a mock of sin. Fools treat sin lightly. But listen, sin treats fools harshly. Sin is a tough taskmaster. The Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. The Bible is clear that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Death is no fun. Death takes the shine off sin. You know, here we are in this Coming up to this Christmas season, of course, already the advertisers are bombarding us, aren't they, with, uh, with glossy drink adverts, showing us that alcohol ought to be at the heart of the Christmas season, that if you're going to have a, a jolly Christmas, if you're going to have a sophisticated uh, Christmas, uh, then uh, alcohol is going to be a necessary part of the celebration. Uh, you'll have to let your hair down a little bit. But in every alcohol advertisement, if you look carefully on the bottom in the small print, it'll say, drink responsibly. That always makes me laugh. Drink responsibly. They'll never show you the drunkard lying in his own vomit, will they? They'll never show you the drunkard sitting in his own urine. They'll never show you the carnage on the roads or the broken homes or the prison cells or the mental hospital beds. Or they'll never show you the lives that are blasted through liver disease. (coughs) Oh, listen to me. Fools may treat sin lightly. But sin treats fools harshly. Sin is deadly and dangerous. I wonder, are you one of those who makes light of sin? Are you fooling around with sin, whether it is alcohol or drugs or or sexual infidelity or immorality or some other area? Do you not realize that sin will destroy you physically, spiritually, and eternally? One fool denies the truth of God. Another makes the light of sin. And the third is so foolish that he thinks life is about the amassing of things. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and I want to begin reading in verse 13. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. 
And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But watch God's words. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You look at this passage and you find a man who's successful in the things of this world. You know, people would have pointed him out as someone who had made it. Perhaps he would be even pointed to as an example to young people and to others as a model of industry and of, of, of enterprise. They'd be impressed with his wealth, impressed, no doubt, with his property. Anything he wanted would have been at his fingertips. And, and you know, he could, buy, he could buy anything he needed. You know, he'd climbed up the grassy pole, the greasy pole of success, and, and yet God calls him a fool. Someone without any sense, someone without any understanding. Why would God call a man like this a fool? Well, there's... A number of reasons, three in all. Number one, he was more concerned with things than he was with God. You know, we get all wrapped up in things. And again, you know, at this time of year, things become so important to us. Material things. What to give for Christmas. What I want for Christmas. And you know, it's so easy to get caught up in materialism. That was what this old farmer's problem was. He was more concerned with possessions than he was with God. And all of his plans for the future, you know, he says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to knock down my barns, I'm going to build bigger and better, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And all of his plans, there's no mention of God, no thought of God. I wonder, is that you? Listen, maybe you're a young person, and all you're thinking about is your future. Well, I'm going to go to university, and I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to have a career and I'm going to drive a fancy car and I'm going to live in a big house and wait a minute where's God in all of this you fool take account of God you know maybe like this man you know you're someone whom the Lord has blessed materially but instead of those blessings driving you to the Lord well they're taking you from the Lord those things that you own, your car, your home, your fine clothes, uh, you know, uh, your business, your career, whatever, are of more concern to you than the things of the Lord. Is that you tonight? Are material things enslaving you? Is it true of you that you no longer own things, but things own you? That's the tyranny of materialism. You start off owning things, and then those things own you. Are you more concerned with all that you own rather than with God? That's what this man was concerned with. He was more concerned with body than he was with soul. Notice he said, soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years. 
Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, the only thing that interested this man was self-indulgence. It was self-gratification. He was foolish enough to believe that by indulging himself, he could satisfy the soul. Is that you? More concerned with your flesh than with your spirit? More concerned with your flesh than with the soul that will exist will exist for all eternity, either in, in bliss or in woe, in heaven or in hell. And then thirdly, we see that this man was more concerned about time than eternity. You can almost imagine him. You know, every time I read about this man, I imagine him standing on the veranda of his home, looking out over acres and acres and acres of land, looking back at his, at his big house and and thinking about this extension that he's going to build, and, and uh, you know, thinking about his success, you can almost see him looking over field upon field of waving golden grain, thinking to himself, you know what, I'm a self-made man. I've done well for myself. I've worked hard. I deserve this. You know, I've made enough money to retire early and spend the rest of my life enjoying the fruit of my labor. And what he didn't realize was that before that day was done, death would come knocking on his door. Little did he know that the flowers flowers in the florist shop were already being prepared to to adorn his grave and, and already prepared for his funeral, that he would would never see another sunrise. What a fool. What a fool. Friend, I wonder tonight what you're living for. Are you living for self rather than God? Are you making light of spiritual matters? Are you living for the physical rather than the eternal? Are you living for time rather than eternity? Friend, where will you spend eternity? Here's the three biggest fools in Ulster tonight. The fool who says there is no God. The fool who mocks at sin. And the fool who puts gold and goods before God. Are you one of them? Is this a picture of you? Many, many years ago in Victorian London, there was a man, an evangelist, who would walk through the city centre of London. And as he did so, he would have a top hat on, and into the top hat, the ribbon of the top hat, he had placed a piece of card in which he had written these words, I am a fool for Christ's sake. He wouldn't say anything to anybody. He would just walk past them. They would see the sign on his hat. They would read it. And many people would laugh and smile and joke with each other and nudge each other and look at this guy. And then they'd walk past and they'd turn back to perhaps make fun of him or to make light of his, of his hat. And it would say on the backside of his hat, whose fool are you? Everybody is somebody's fool. You're either a fool for Christ's sake or you're a fool for sin and the devil. Whose fool are you? Don't be a fool tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, come to the Lord Jesus in faith, believing, and come before it's too late. We're going to rise together and sing our closing hymn this evening. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior 
to me.